So we're looking at Matthew, the 11th chapter, verses 20 through 30, and it reads, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, see, we're going to mess up these names. Help us out, Charlie, when you get up here. <laughs> Woe to you, Chirazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, have been, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your grace, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure about um, karaoke, <laughs> given the nature of today's focus on solitude and silence. <laughs> and uh, I think that I could not have picked a more uh, potent illustration than the thousand nails on a chalkboard sound of microphones crossing in front of speakers. I think it was me. I don't think it was your left foot. And so if you're watching online and you didn't get that, or maybe I apologize because you got it so strong, but that is a vivid example of what noise can do to our soul. And as we think about our personal kind of lives and the state that we're in and the season of life that we're in, uh, I think that the practices of solitude and silence may be more valuable now than ever. And so let me give a little bit of a disclaimer, just kind of a personal piece up front. Brandon mentioned a little bit about my family. Our house is loud and busy. We got four kids. They're ages four to eight. Uh, I am, uh, if you're an Enneagram person, I'm a social instinct. I'm a three, wing two. Love to be around people. Love to be interacting with people. If you're a Myers-Briggs person, big E, like high extroversion. I am a communicator by profession. So all of that gives me a great default setting for solitude and silence. And I'm thinking, I'm guessing, maybe those of you that choose to live in a city as populous as New York, as busy as New York, as noisy as New York, as lively as New York, solitude and silence may not be the, the default settings when it comes to returning to the Lord, turning our hearts toward God. But these two practices may be more, more valuable now than ever. I want to be clear up front that this question is probably already stirring in your head. Charlie, why are you asking me to be a hermit? Why? Like, what is the value of being a hermit? Isn't like, you know, the second half of the greatest commandment to love others, like to be with people? Aren't we to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? Like, what does it really look like to be 
in solitude and silence. We probably have some image of like a monk from the you know, third century or something going out into the desert, living there for decades and experiencing all this mystical supernatural stuff. So Charlie, why are you asking me to do that? And I'm saying today, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to ask you to pack up all your things or leave them all here and withdraw out into a desert someplace and expect these mystical supernatural experiences. But I am going to encourage us today because I think that there's a tension we're all feeling, a tension of, of languish and exhaustion and just being completely worn down. And yet we still believe we have to keep going, 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 keep going. It's annoying when somebody says it that much, isn't it? But isn't that kind of how we live? Every minute of every day on solitude, solitude and silence, specifically and supernaturally satisfy our soul. There's a movie, uh, Kevin Costner is known for sports movies. One of his lesser known ones is the movie For Love of the Game. He's a professional pitcher in the major leagues. And in the midst of this movie, I think one of the loneliest places it's been said of sports, one of the loneliest places in sports is the pitcher's mound. And what you think about on that pitcher's mound, it's a little bit elevated, you know, it's raised up, but the entire stadium is looking down on that pitcher because every play in baseball begins with the pitch. And so everybody, all the noise, all the chaos, all the, the sounds and all the experiences of the, the uh, stadium can be overwhelming. So in this movie, Kevin Costner is this pitcher, he has this little phrase that he draws out. And I want to kind of give you this phrase today because this is what we're trying to do with today's text. He looks around the entire stadium and he'll notice things and he'll call it out. He'll be like, hot dog vendor, little boy here with his dad. He notices all the things that are happening. And then he says this phrase, he says, clear the mechanism. And the next thing he focuses on after saying that is the catcher. Because all he has to do in the next moment is throw one pitch. Is it possible that you and I can live in the midst of noise, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of activity, and somehow clear the mechanism? I don't want you to be a hermit. I want you to live with clarity. I want you to know what the appropriate and obedient and faithful step is in the next moment. Solitude and silence have a way of specifically and supernaturally satisfying our souls. This is how Ruth Haley Barton says, if you're looking for a resource, Ruth Haley Barton wrote a book called Solitude, Invitation to Solitude and Silence. But this is how she describes the state of people. With all of our emphasis, even Christian people, with all of our emphasis on theology and word, cognition and service, and as important as those things are, we are starved for mystery. We're starved for mystery. To know this God is the one who is totally other and to experience reverence in his presence. We are starved for intimacy, to see and feel and know God in the very cells of our being. We are starved for rest. To know God beyond what we can do for him. We are starved for quiet. To hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. God extends the invitation. But he honors our freedom and will not push in where he is not wanted. Today is really a text, a sermon about responding to an invitation. Do you desire to be with God? over and above and beyond all the noise and activity of the world? 
Do you honestly, earnestly, in the deepest recesses of your soul, long and hunger to be with God? Because silence and solitude have a way of clearing the mechanism, moving aside all of the clutter, and bringing you into the mysterious, intimate, restful, and quiet place where you experience the very presence of God. Silence and solitude specifically and supernaturally satisfy our soul. It is an invitation. And you have the freedom to respond or to pass. God will not force it on you. It happened to Zechariah. He got forced into silence. I don't know if you remember that. John the Baptist's dad, he got forced into it. But God will not push in where he is not wanted. He honors your freedom. And he extends this invitation from the end of our text today, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. I put it in here in the message translation for you. This is how Eugene Peterson translates those last few verses. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? It applies to Christians too. Jesus says, come to me. He didn't say, come to church. He didn't say, come to Bible study. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This whole season and series returning has been focused on these spiritual habits, these disciplines that we talk about. And today, silence and solitude are kind of two partner disciplines. But I want you to think about them in this way and the other weeks of the series in this way. Think about them as the unforced rhythms of grace. The unforced rhythms of grace. Discipline sounds so clenched, doesn't it? Well, what does the unforced rhythm of grace sound like? Is it possible that your life has been a bit out of rhythm? And because of that, you're tired, you're worn out, you're burnt out. Even our religious fervor can become exhausting and exasperating. Adam Grant just recently released a podcast and a book where he talked about the languished nature of our society post-pandemic. Languish. It's what most of us are living in and feeling on a day-to-day basis. Jesus has come to me. And I'll teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. And we get the privilege of learning these from Jesus himself. I mean, in the first few chapters of the book of Mark, you see Jesus is is constantly moving between these things. He's moving between activity and rest. Activity and rest. Time with people and time away. Time socially and time in quiet. Jesus is demonstrating this rhythm in his own life. In Luke chapter 4 and again in Luke chapter 2, there's this little phrase about Jesus' prayer rhythm. It says, he went to these places as was his custom. He had a rhythm to his life where he was moving between activity and disengagement. We see it as Jesus begins to teach his own apostles what this looks like. If you remember, there's a a sequence in which Jesus sends out the 12 apostles two by two to go on this short-term mission trip, to go out and do these miraculous works in the region that we were just reading about, the region where people were seeing the works of God, but they weren't embracing the gospel of Jesus. They were seeing the works of God and the disciples themselves, these 12 followers of Jesus, had gone out and they had done miraculous things. 
And they came back all hyped up to give a report to Jesus about all the stuff that they had done. And this is what Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 6. It says that the apostles returned to Jesus and told them everything that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a wilderness, to a desolate place and rest a while. And Mark makes known that many were coming and going. So many were coming and going that the disciples had no leisure even to eat. Have you ever been through a day where you're so busy you forgot to eat? Every day? Verse 32, and so they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. If Jesus himself wasn't exempt from life's rhythm, why do we think we are? If Jesus didn't force his own followers to go, 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 do, 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 talk, 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 why do we? Jesus modeled it himself in the first six chapters of Mark, and Jesus taught it to his followers. Get away by yourselves for a little while. Because something happens in the solitude and silence that doesn't happen in the noise and chaos and activity of life. We learn the unforced rhythms of grace from Jesus. And so you may be wondering, what happens? What happens when we, act, when we actually set aside time and space to be alone and to be quiet? When we're actually trying to clear the mechanism, what goes down in silence and solitude? And I heard Russell reference this a couple of weeks ago. Mark Chapter 1 gives us this tiny little picture of, of Jesus retreating into the wilderness before he begins his public ministry. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 give a little bit longer of a view. Luke chapter 4 gives another kind of long view of what happens to Jesus in the wilderness. And here's an interesting thing about that whole experience. It's what we celebrate Lent when we go 40 days through the season of Lent. It remembers the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness by himself not talking to anybody. And we see in that space that Jesus was formed and forged for his public ministry. Jesus began his ministry in solitude and silence. Before he came forward preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He spent 40 days preparing his soul for what was about to begin. And then he continuously, as was his custom, finds that rhythm throughout his public life. Our lives today have become far too public, far too public. We are constantly being consumed by others. And we feel the need to produce, the need to contribute, the need to say something about everything. That's not a holy command. It's not being faithful to run yourselves ragged, to be that worn down, languished, and exhausted. What actually happens in silence and solitude? This is how Henry Nouwen describes it in the way of the heart. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. In the midst of silence and solitude, we enter into a great struggle and a great encounter. That's what happened to Jesus over those 40 days. He was struggling with a supernatural enemy. 
But in the midst of that, he was being ministered to in a supernatural way. It says that Jesus is going through these trials by the tempter, by the devil, but at the same time, he's being ministered to by the spirits. He was driven into the wilderness by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that wilderness experience, he is miraculously sustained by the presence of God. So much so that he finds his ultimate purpose and engages that as he comes out of the wilderness. This is how Luke summarizes it. Luke chapter 4, when he summarizes Jesus coming out of the wilderness, he says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In the midst of the wilderness, Jesus found power and glory. Two things that I feel many of our lives are lacking. Solitude and silence is a specific place and time set apart for the great struggle and the great encounter. It is the furnace of transformation. God does spiritual work in us that he can and will not do in anybody else. It is the ultimate one-on-one formation experience. No other people in the circle giving their opinions. No teacher, no mentor, no leader, no book, no resource, no podcast. God himself forming us shaping us. And I I have to say, I think we have to be open to the supernatural in the midst of these experiences, but we have to temper that, okay? Don't get weird about it. There has to be a boundary there. Like, we don't go into silence and solitude for the sake of the supernatural. We go into silence and solitude because it is outside the natural. It is not what we normally do. It is, in the truest sense of the word, super, above, beyond, outside of, the natural. And in that space, God gets our full attention and can speak directly to us. And here's the beauty of that. It's not general and normal kind of formation. It is specific and supernatural formation. God is ready, willing, and able to meet you there at any time. I mean, think about this for a second. It's like, God desires to be with you so much. He is so madly, recklessly in love with you that he is available to you whenever you'll make yourself available to him. He will never ghost you. But sometimes I think about God in like this cosmic realm, sitting and waiting for us to show up. The way that you probably see people sitting and waiting in coffee shops and bars and restaurants and parks all the time. Waiting on an Uber, waiting on someone to serve you, waiting on someone else to show up. I think God often feels Like, we don't want to be with him. We'd rather be with the friends, with the person, with the family even, or with the church. We're more interested in the community physically that manifests than we are in the person who formed and holds the whole community together. And it's not wrong. It's not bad. I told you, I'm a social person. I'm an extroverted person. I'm a talker. 
But I need to be reminded often how much God wants to be just with me. And to be forced to ask myself the question, do I equally desire him as much? Do I equally desire him as much? And here's this powerful and glorious thing that happens when we enter into that space and God can specifically and supernaturally work with us, form us, shape us. We enter into the void. We go into the wilderness. We go into solitude and silence. And in the midst of that, we find our most powerful and glorious voice. In the midst of the void, you find your true voice, your true self, the person that God destined and designed you to be, like Ephesians 2 says, that you are, you are the workmanship of God. It's by grace you've been saved, not by faith. God desires to be in relationship with you. And when you enter into even small moments of silence and solitude with him, you find the most powerful and glorious essence of who you are. You don't have to look to others to give you that. God himself is waiting on the street, waiting in the booth, waiting at that place and saying, come on, let's find and discover who you really are. Let me fill you with power and glory so that all the mechanism can be cleared and you can do the next right thing. Paul picks up on this. Paul gives a, a couple of different applications throughout his letters. There's this little word that he'll use in 1 Thessalonians 4 and again in 1 Timothy 2. He says, we urge you to aspire to live quietly. This is one that I often want to, you know, like comment on Christians on social media or like sometimes when you're watching the news or things, you're like, I just wish that this was the verse we all, you know, applied intensely. I aspire you to live quietly. Live quietly. Or again in 1 Timothy, that we may live a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Have you been told that being a Christian is like basically being Jesus' hype man? You know, like God's out there doing stuff. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we've been sold an extroverted and highly social version of Christianity in America. There are great streams, vast volumes about the nature and character of God that have stood the test of time, that have stood for centuries, written by people who were contemplatives, people who lived more quiet and godly and dignified lives, peaceable lives. They were never hyped, not even in their own generations. Many of them withdrew from public life. And we drink from the deep wells with which they experienced God. And our souls are nourished. Sometimes I think we have a false view of what it means to be a Christian. Even as we think about our spiritual habits, the unforced rhythms of grace, how many of them are social? You know? But what we're starving for is the very presence of God, intimacy with God. And I think, honestly, when we're, when we're young, when we're new at this, it's essential that we have community that comes alongside of us. It's essential that we have um, people whose lives are worthy of imitation and examples to follow. The, I'm not saying that silence and solitude is like an all or nothing. It's either all contemplative or all social. I'm saying that the Christian life is all of that. But many of us are so focused on one aspect, we're completely missing this. But I like to think about it even in terms of our progression of relationship with God. Sometimes when we're first getting to know God, we need to hang out in a group to see if we like them. 
You know how you do that, right? Like, it's like, oh, this group is kind of like, it's a safe space. Like, maybe I'll kind of dabble with them and see how this goes. Like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I'm getting closer to where it's kind of like you start to, like, branch off in the group with God, you know, and you're like, okay, like, there's, people are talking, but, like, I'm really experiencing him in this really powerful way right now. This is kind of cool. And then you, like, make a commitment. You go official, right? You, you make a profession of faith. You, you're baptized. You come into this new identity. But guess what? It's still a highly social period. There's a lot of chatter about being Christian early on. But those who continue to develop the relationship start to find that the chatter starts to fade. Or sometimes even the chatter becomes a bit annoying. And what you really hunger for is God himself. Because ultimately in eternity, he is the one we will have. I remember Francis Chan gave this sermon one time. He talked about all these, you know, the image of the great banquet in all eternity. He's like, this is the best food you've ever eaten. It's a beautiful environment, the most glorious city you've ever been in. And all these people that you love and who love you are there. He's like, doesn't that sound awesome? And people are like, yeah, that sounds amazing. He goes, did you notice who wasn't there? Jesus. Many of us want heaven minus Jesus. He goes, now flip the script. If Jesus was the only one there, would you want it as much? God is gracious. He doesn't make you choose between those two, but it's an interesting evaluation and examination of our own soul. Who do you want the most? Because as relationships progress, maybe you've seen this elderly couple who can just simply be in one another's presence without saying anything. Thomas Merton says that they have found a way of being in communion with one another. They've actually entered into one another's beings. And they live as one. So much so that words become almost less important. They have a way of being together. Ruth Haley Barton, again, from Invitation of Silence and Solitude, talks about this. The truth is that desire is the lifeblood surging through the heart of the spiritual life. You may not realize it, but your desire for God is the truest and most essential thing about you. It is truer than your sin. It is truer than your woundedness. It is truer than your net worth, your marital status, or any role or responsibility you hold. Your desire for God and your capacity to connect with God as a human soul is the essence of who you are. Maybe part of the reason we're so exasperated, so exhausted, so languished is because we've lost sight of who we really are. And the invitation is an invitation to return this year. Sadly, within the last calendar year, uh, my grandma passed away. And I went back to, to participate in the services. And, and I, I have to tell you, like, my grandma and my grandpa for over a half century have been in communion with one another. Like, I used to wonder as a kid, like, how can two people love each other so much and not say anything to each other? They just were together. And there was a tragic moment in the midst of the funeral service where I looked at my grandfather, who's still living, and I, I recognized that the fellowship had been broken, the communion had been broken. And it was a tragedy. But I wonder how many of us, how many of us 
experience that tragedy on a regular basis with God. He keeps showing up. But we got other things going on. I'm too busy. I'm too important, God. I'm too, I got too much going on. I'm doing too many things for you even to just be with you. It's a tragedy of broken fellowship. And in the midst of that tragedy, Jesus speaks to us. Matthew chapter 11 again. He says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're burnt out, if you're exhausted, I'll give you rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. You're going to learn these unforced rhythms of grace. I'm not going to lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I want to end with a, a, a prayer today, a poem really that comes from Gorillas of Grace by Ted Loder, uh, a poem. But before we do that, I just want to give you a moment, especially since we experienced the fracturing effect of sound early. I want to give you just 10 seconds of silence before I read the poem and before we pray it together. And I want you to notice that there is a power that comes in silence. We do it often, right? In society, we'll give a moment of silence for something. But I want you just to notice in your own soul how much more attentive you are to the prayer, having just practiced a moment of silence. It'll be short. It'll be 10 seconds. And the poem will be up here. If you want to read it along with me, you don't have to read it out loud. But I'll give you that 10 seconds. And when the poem comes up, we'll read it together. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness, quiet my fretfulness, curb my aimlessness, relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. Oh Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly from the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip that I may be open to receiving what you give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather me to be with you as you are with me. Amen.